Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Megan Bruno is a psychotherapist dubbed as the millennials therapist by our friend and spiritual icon Deepak Chopra. She received her Bachelor of Arts in Psychology and Family Studies from the University of British Columbia and a Master's of Arts in Counseling Psychology from Simon Fraser University. She's a registered clinical counselor in British Columbia and now works with clients in New York as well as globally as a remote coach. Today we're going to talk about how she overcame struggles with mental health and eating disorder and great tips like how to know when to break up with someone, how to spot a narcissist, why narcissists and empaths are attracted to each other, and we're also going to explore the gut-brain connection. Megan's one of our favorites here at Mind Buddy Green, so it's an honor to have her here today. Megan, welcome. Thank you for having me, Jason. So let's rewind and start with your personal health journey. My personal health journey. Oh, do we want mental, physical, or even oh. differentiating between the two? Oh, let's go. Let's do all of it. <laughs> okay. Well. Um, Gosh, I mean, I think for me, I mental health is, of course, the area that is um, the most important to me, the most relevant for me in what we're going to talk about. And that's, of course, related to physical health and, you know, the gut and the body and everything like that. So, of course, they're all interconnected. But for me, um, I struggled with depression and anxiety and eating disorders for a, most of my life, for a very long period in my life. Um, started having symptoms of, of bulimia around 15. But before that, I, I actually, in retrospect, realized I was struggling with anxiety and depression. But I didn't realize that at the time. I just thought that I would, like, I don't know, wrote really, like, dark poetry and loved Eminem kind of thing <laughs> and, like, kickboxing, whatever else. Um, and what I didn't realize was a lot of that was caused by this chronic shame that I lived with and the perfectionism, um, which we'll get into, I imagine, but the perfectionism that... Um, I had adapted to try to avoid any kind of uncomfortable feelings, to try to avoid feelings of rejection and sadness and loneliness and disappointment and guilt and anxiety because I didn't know how to deal with them because I didn't have a good relationship to myself or to emotions. I didn't know how to um, emotionally regulate. And so I had adapted this way of living my life and relating to myself where I just tried to never feel discomfort. And in addition to that, um, I also believed that if I could just get to a place where I was like good enough, and in this case it was thin enough, that was kind of where I put a lot of my my attention. If I was thin enough, if um, you know, I was successful enough, if I was valedictorian, if I was athlete of the year, if I got into a good school, if I did my masters, you know, if I did all of these sorts of things, if I was popular, um, then I would finally feel like I was enough, and I would finally be able to kind of just like relax into life and not have to keep running and feeling like I was just always um like anxiety was always nipping at my heels telling me like you could screw up or you could fail and it's interesting because like for a long time I thought I was like gosh I, I've never really people would ask like what have you ever failed at and I was like nothing and I would I thought for so long I was like I guess I, gosh I just must be really good at everything but I mean I didn't actually believe that that was kind of like the cognitive interpretation underneath I was like so terrified I wasn't good at anything but the reason I had never failed was because I never did anything where I could possibly fail so that's one of the ways that perfectionism manifests like I'd orchestrated my life in a way that 
if like, you know, I went and tr- tried out for the volleyball team and I didn't make it. And so I never picked played a volleyball again. Cause I was like, well, I guess I just can't do this, you know, or I'm, I'm not good at math. So I never like took more courses in it. I didn't take math. A lot well. of people do these things you're talking about and myself included. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, well, because like we're not taught, I mean, not everyone, but at least speaking for myself and for a lot of people, we're not really encouraged to do things imperfectly and to suck at things and to do things in like with a beginner's mind. And so we put all this pressure on ourselves. And I believed that like, if I wasn't good at certain things, then I was a failure. I could never get good at it. And so I lived my life like that for a, a long time. However, I re- I realized that with the symptoms of bulimia, like I was binging and purging and then restricting. And, you know, I, we differentiate between different forms of eating disorders or disordered eating. But really, for me, I, I approach it from a perspective of like, you know, there's a very blurred line between all of them and all restri- all eating disorders are really restrictive disorders because even something like binge eating disorder has like a restrictive component and usually comes from restriction. Restriction and dieting is what triggers eating disorders most of the time. So for me, um, I was struggling with this for a very long time and I thought, okay, well, I know what I'll do. Um, you know, I, my family, I had a pretty sort of dysfunctional, I mean, it's all relative, but my, my parents had gone through a really rough divorce and I didn't have a lot of... Um, like adult or parental uh, support and supervision. And when it was there, it wasn't super consistent because my mom was going through her own stuff. And so I was like, well, I know what I'll do. I'll just get a master's in psychology and figure it out myself, you know, (laughs) like thinking that that would be what would heal me. And uh, so, you know, fast forward, I did all of that. I went through, I got my master's. um, And ironically, I mean, I was like 24, almost 25, finishing my master's degree. At that point, my eating disorder had turned into anorexia. And um, I was like in the pit of depression and in like a relationship where I was really unsupported. And uh, it basically like I was like rock bottom as I was completing my master's degree. So like that was not necessarily giving me the answers that I'd been looking for. But what did happen was as I was at that place and, you know, really, I think my lowest body weight I'd been at, my boyfriend of, of three years left me. And he left me for someone else. And it was like my worst fear. That's what happened to my mom. And that's what I thought my whole life. I was like, if I'm thin, people will love me. You know, if I'm thin, if I get into this prestigious master's program, if I do everything very successfully, I can protect myself from pain. And so when he left me, I was like, what the fuck? Like, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear. Sure. Okay, okay, okay sorry. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? Like, the, like, they lied. Like, the world lied. Everything I know to be true is not true because I did everything right. Like, here I am, like, successful, like, youngest person in my program by many years. Like, you know, I'm hardworking. I got the best internship I could possibly get. I'm, you know, I have my, my boyfriend and I'm super thin and all these things. And, like, I still was left. And so that kind of, like, flipped my worldview upside down. And I realized, oh, you actually can't protect yourself from pain. And a couple of other things happened at that time that were really profound for me. Um, one was I'd had so many over-exercising injuries that um, I went to my physical therapist and he was like, look, you can't keep going to the gym. I was like a personal trainer at the time on the side because, again, I thought that's what would make me thinner. Everything was always in pursuit of thinness. And uh, he was like, look, you can't work out anymore. You can't work out and you can't run. The only thing I'll let you do is yoga. That's the only thing. And I pushed back and he's like, look, you're going to ruin your body and never run again. So this is the only thing you can do. And if not, like, I'm just giving you my professional opinion kind of thing. And so I listened to him because I was scared. And it was really like one of my only coping mechanisms was exercise. 
wasn't the healthiest in the way that I was using it, but it was what I believed it was a coping mechanism. And so I started doing yoga and what I realized through that process, well, in, in addition to, you know, my body really healing a lot of the injuries that I was dealing with, I learned, I started to recognize like, I started to feel my body. I started to actually become in touch with the body that I had cut myself off from for so many years, which, you know, when we go through trauma, which most humans do, we we tend to dissociate, we tend to cut ourselves off from our bodies, and that's how we kind of operate in the world. And most of us are walking around, like, unaware that we even have bodies. And so I started to, like, wake up to my body and become more in touch with not only, like, my physical body, but as a result, my emotions. And I started to learn how to be with the physical discomfort of like holding a yoga pose that I didn't enjoy. And I also started to learn how to feel more of the emotional discomfort that was coming up, particularly at that time, my heartbreak over over my boyfriend. And um, the other thing that happened was I became really aware in the laboratory of the yoga room of how hard I was on myself. Like I would fall out of a pose and I would beat myself up or, you know, I wouldn't be able to like stretch as deeply as I could have the day before. And I would, you know, be comparing myself to someone else or comparing <laughs> to myself to like a past self, you know, or a past version of myself in the yoga room. And so, and, and I noticed like, you know, okay, I, maybe I can take child's pose when everyone else is, you know, holding downward dog. And I started to be a bit kinder to myself and I realized just how hard I've been on myself. And and the final thing that's important was that when I was going through that heartbreak, I pushed, I tried to push away my emotions for so long. I tried to, because I'd always grown up being like, you know, fuck, you're pathetic, you know, to my mom who cried a lot and stuff, or like, you know, people aren't supposed to be sad and that just means they're weak. And um, so I'd been judging myself for being so sad. And I'd said like, you know, he wasn't good enough for you, just get over it and stuff like that. But it's impossible when you're going through grief to just push those feelings away for very long. And so finally I surrendered into them. And what I didn't realize was that was mindfulness. I didn't realize that in actually um, finally waking up one morning and being like, okay, sadness, you can be here. I hope you don't stay for long, but you can be here. I realized that I was experiencing um, mindfulness and no longer creating what we call secondary emotions by judging myself for having my primary ones. Primary emotions meaning the emotions that are evolutionary, they're there for a reason, they're there for pro-social reasons, survival reasons, excuse me, as signals that we should listen to. And unfortunately in our society, we talk a lot about like positive thinking and like choosing happiness and actually like that's not helpful and can also create those secondary emotions I described. So fast forward and through my own process of healing and through that discovering Buddhism and and spirituality and really starting to rework my relationship to myself, I started to actually step out of my comfort zone and do things that scared me. Um, The things that I'd avoided for so long because I didn't know how to deal with discomfort. But now in knowing I could be with things like rejection and disappointment and anxiety and whatever comes along with failure, I was like, oh, I I can be kind to myself in response and I can take these risks. And through doing that, I was like, you know what I've always wanted to do? Start a blog. So I started a blog. And I started writing about things that I was passionate about. You know, I think we're a really over-medicated society and I'm not against psychopharmaceuticals, but I think we're way too quick to prescribe antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication. And oftentimes people are just like, you know, really lacking meaning in their lives or lacking social connection, et cetera. So I started talking about all this stuff. And then I one day decided to try and submit an article to Mind Body Green. <laughs> and here I, you are I, today. <laughs> exactly. And so I'd read Mind Body Green and I. This is like 2013? Um, yeah, I think it was 2014. 2014. It, it might have actually been 2013 or 20, It was right around there. Yeah, 2013 or 2014. 
And I'd always read Mind Body Green and I just loved it because at that time I was reading it from more at more of like an eating disordered place. I was looking for always like the latest nutritional information or ways that I could restrict. And I was like, you know, this seems like an outlet that maybe would be interested in this. And I actually had submitted an article that was rejected that I ended up po- posting on like my yoga online at the time. But it was another time where I was like, you know what, I'm going to try this again, which <laughs> I never would have done before because in the past, if I'd been rejected, I would have like hard no, never done it again. So... I sent you guys an article and I still remember like Colleen's sister, Carrie Shaw, got yeah. an email from her, like life-changing email, just being like, yeah, we want to, yeah, we want to, we want to publish this. And it was called 12 lifestyle factors that make you feel depressed. <laughs> and uh, what I wanted to share was that like, Hey, here are all these other things that make you feel depressed. It's not necessarily a neurochemical imbalance in your brain. It's like, again, like diet, movement, social connection, meaning, grief, trauma, and so on and on. Anyway. So <laughs> moving forward here, basically um, through that, it did really well. I wrote a few more articles for you guys. Then I got an email, hey, we're having this inaugural conference called Revitalize in Arizona. Um, <laughs> and it's going to be investors, influencers, you know, and entrepreneurs. And I didn't know what any of those words meant. <laughs> I was like, cool, investors, influencers, and entrepreneurs. I was like, don't know what any of those things are. A- at the time, I was working as a therapist at a, a college, which I loved, amazing job. And I just remember, like, I remember timing-wise, I was coming back from Europe with my boyfriend, and then I was, like, going to Vegas, like, the next weekend or something, and it was, like, I had to fit it between these two trips, and I was, like, does this make sense? And I was, like, this just seems like I should go to this. (laughs) And I went, and I remember, like, meeting people like, you know, John Kim and Dana Claudette, I think, is is that her last name? Yeah, Yeah, and, um, and just, like, people who were so inspirational, Joe Cross, who's still a very good friend of mine today. And um, I just remember being like, wow, like there's this world that I didn't know existed. I mean, people can just start businesses and they can like (laughs) just like have an idea. And then from there, you know, I met someone there who was a founder of a company and he said, like, I'll sponsor your visa if you want. I think we could use you at um, at this at our company. And I was confused because I'm like, I have like seven years of education <laughs> in psychology, but I don't really know anything about business. And I'm not really sure what I can do for you. But, you know, they said they wanted a psychological wellness consultant. And for me, all I wanted to do was get to New York because I'd visited New York and I thought I knew that I just had to be here. It was the and like non it was something I couldn't explain. I just knew I had to be here. So. I took that opportunity um, and I ultimately got my visa sponsored. I worked at that startup for, you know, six to eight months. I think it was eight months. Realized that they weren't actually like, quote unquote, democratizing health in the way that they did describe they were democratizing health, in my opinion. Um, And so, you know, I was kind of like, look, I, I came here to bring more wellness to the world not to like sell green juice to the one percent and so i left there and um i'm still deeply grateful for that experience because it really set me up where i am now um gave me a lot of wonderful relationships and helped me get my like you know open a bank account and stuff like that in the states and uh but for the last almost five years now i've just been you know being a therapist and coach um in private practice myself online and in person and you know i have a podcast and been on many podcasts and I speak now which is like the shit that scares me because that's my next like area I want to develop more um and I write and I guess I don't know if I'm considered like a social media influencer or micro influencer or whatever I'm some kind of I would say you're you're a subject matter expert who has a large following yes yeah (laughs) exactly exactly yeah or subject matter expert with a significant file or more in tune following yes Yes, exactly. They're not all created equally. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. And so, so now, I mean, it's been like such a journey for me and, you know, um, from there, it's interesting because the gateway for me to like wellness and spirituality really actually was coming from like a very, a a sick place or a not well place, which I think is what brings most of us to this work, um, or this area, I should say. Um, and 
you know, I realized that my pursuit of like what I thought was quote unquote wellness, physical wellness was actually like a way that I was trying to numb my pain, thinking that I could get a certain body type or be like so healthy and I could like avoid my emotions and my sadness and my shame and my trauma and everything like that. But really what I needed to do was go through the very process I've gone through, but ultimately come to a place where I can accept myself and my imperfection and uh, accept the imperfect quote-unquote or difficult feelings that come up and now like it's interesting I mean I've, I've become fairly interested in psychedelics and I'm not an expert on that so I probably can't answer your questions with any expertise but I think that that is a new frontier in terms of like trauma processing and I think like there's a lot of possibility there in terms of uh, dislodging and, and working sure. through a lot of trap stuff people have. So there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, Thank know, you for I sharing. You're welcome. I love your journey. You are a part of the Mind Buddy Green journey oh, in so many you. ways. I'm and we are so grateful for you oh, and I'm your so success and, you. and everything. It's amazing you. that you've, you've grown with us. Thank you. Um, so there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> <laughs> so I have my, so let, let's start with something you said earlier in the conversation and this, and I think it, so many things you touched on, I think everyone struggles with, um, some more severely than others, but I think we've all struggled with. So let's start with shame. Yeah, sure. What's going on there? Yeah. Why can't we just be nice to ourselves? You know, I mean, look, there is there is a place for shame, right? Like when you think about emotions, um, oftentimes we label emotions as good and bad. And I think that's a very unhelpful. You'll notice I even use terms like unhelpful instead of good or bad because I think like language also really influences how we feel about things. Um, but the thing about emotions is uh, they're evolutionary. Like they're there for a reason, as I alluded to earlier. They're there to protect us and so and and keep us alive and keep us procreating. And so if you think about things like loneliness, something like loneliness, you know, it tells us to connect or guilt. It tells us to like repair, you know, a rupture in a relationship or anxiety tells us to watch out, you know, the list goes on. What and any emotion basically is there for like a lesson or a signal. And they're what we call pro-social. So they keep us like in groups because again, we wouldn't survive as individuals, especially like in tribal days or whatever, cave person days. We want to be able to be in a group so that we're protected from predators. We want to be able to get in on like the kill, you know, if we're dinner um, and we want to stay warm and we want to be able to procreate, procreate, excuse me, most importantly. And so emotions are all there for a reason. Now the difference is today, um, those emotions are still very helpful and important and we don't want to like shut them off. But this is where mindfulness comes in. We want to be able to notice them and ask them like, hmm, what are you telling me anxiety? So like if I'm walking home from a bar like late at night and I have the choice to go down like the dark alley or the well-lit street, if I start going down the dark alley, I'm gonna feel anxiety and I want to feel that. I want to be able to listen to it because it's saying, this is unsafe. You need to go down the well-lit street. And if I didn't have that anxiety, I would probably be putting myself in danger. But however, like if I'm, I don't know, getting on a plane to take off or going to speak in front of an audience and I feel that anxiety, Anxiety tells me to get off the plane or tells me to get off the stage. And like, I don't necessarily want to listen to that, right? So coming back to shame, I differentiate between types of shame. So there's chronic shame and then there's like a, a more serving shame or a more fleeting shame that's appropriate for the situation. So if you get on the subway and like you just, just you know, push an old lady out of her chair so that you can like sit in it or something, if you feel shame, that, that's a healthy shame. So that shame is there to say, hey, you're doing something antisocial and it might ostracize you from the group. 
So you want to feel this so you don't do that antisocial thing and you maintain like, um, you know, a positive reputation and you're like liked enough to belong, basically. Shame is all about belonging. So there are instances in which we want to feel shame because it's showing us that we have morals and values and we're doing something that's not pro-social. But most of us, when we're feeling shame, it's not for that reason. A lot of us feel shame. Um, there's a deeper kind of chronic shame that comes out of attachment trauma or relational trauma. And that happens when we've grown up with like, inconsistent parenting or neglectful parenting or there maybe it's not even like a caregiver or a parent but this can happen in like romantic relationships sibling relationships teachers coaches whatever but ultimately we get the message we internalize a message somewhere along the way that we're not good enough we're broken we're unlovable we're bad that kind of thing like at our core and so we spend our lives trying to hide that part of ourselves from people or like shadow self, some people call it, um, hide that part of ourselves from people so they don't see how we're actually really bad and they still accept us and love us and spend our lives trying to like rid ourselves of that by like ultimately achieving some kind of perfection. And so that um, that kind of shame is more like the chronic shame that's at the root of perfectionism and at the root of a lot of like addictions and anxiety and depression and stuff like that. The other kind of shame that is important to recognize that's also not really healthy is the shame that's more fleeting around um, like conformity basically, like in social norms, I guess I should say. So like feeling shame for not being thin enough, you know, thin enough based on what our- What do you see on Instagram? Exactly, what our unrealistic societal expectations are. So Instagram is a perfect example. So shame that comes out of comparison, shame that comes out of being like, well, you know, I'm not, I don't look like that influencer. I don't have the nicest fashion or my job doesn't make enough money or it's not important enough or I don't have enough followers or I don't have enough friends or, you know, my house isn't big enough or, um, you know, my car isn't nice enough or I don't live in a cool enough city or like all of these like I'm not enough this isn't enough kind of thing so it's more around like performative or around like what a person has and stuff like that as opposed to that just like flawed insidious feeling that like you're bad and broken so this is all at the root of of perfectionism ultimately um and so perfectionism again as I mentioned from a place of like wanting to be perfect so that you don't you believe you don't feel that shame and you're good enough and you kind of beat the shame and also wanting to like be perfect in your emotional experience because when we have a lot of that shame we don't know how to we're not nice to ourselves we're really critic self-critical and so we don't know how to be with those uncomfortable emotions so bringing it back to my story about like you know being really heartbroken and feeling sadness, me beating myself up and being like, you're pathetic, you know, you're weak, get over it. It's not that big of a deal. Everyone gets heartbroken, you know, dismissing and invalidating my emotions. That is coming from a place of like shame and self-criticism and self-abandonment. And it's more of like an internalized way of, of, you know, at least how I perceived emotions were um, in my family and stuff like that. And so when we can shift that and actually be really self-loving and and self-compassionate is actually the term in the literature to ourselves around emotions and just being imperfect in general then we don't have to you know keep running from that stuff so every time there's just more to unpack (laughs) so (laughs) we're gonna be for hours (laughs) when when you were saying essentially it's this vicious cycle of comparing yourself to others keeping up with the joneses totally you know, I think we all fall victim victim to that sometimes. And something that's that's I think helped me manage that is this, you know, the idea of, of, of being grateful. And you also talk about self love and something we've talked about before. And these are two real practices that, that do work and there's science behind them, but they yeah. also fall into what we call the self help platitudes. Yes. <laughs> totally. No, that's a great that was a great segue. Um so look, I mean, totally the re- gratitude is like research supported. I am like a 
deeply grateful every day for so, so many things. Um, you know, I think we all could stand to be a lot more grateful, you know, as an aside, I've written about this on Mind Body Green, but like, I think we don't talk about death enough, about our mortality. We don't recognize just like the pre precious, like fragile nature of our life or our like able-bodiedness, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the time. However, there are a lot of platitudes in the self-help world that I think are deeply, you know, destructive on the more extreme end, you know, not helpful on the, the more minor end. Um, and those are a couple of them. And so with gratitude, um, it's kind of like when, when a person is feeling really depressed or when they're feeling, you know, heartbroken or rejected or anxious or like whatever, they're just dealing with an uncomfortable feeling because they're human. Um, and whether they say it to themselves or whether someone beside them says like, don't feel that right. basically it's it, it it creates again what we call these secondary emotions so just to recap on that because it's a really important point and i want people to get it primary emotions are the evolutionary it's an expression of emotions that's like evolutionary it's helpful this message there that you're supposed to listen to the secondary emotions are the ones that come out of us judging ourselves for having the primary emotions or resisting the primary emotion it's also called the second arrow in buddhism and so when if you were to, you know, be telling me that you were, you know, totally heartbroken or there's like something like some massive like thing going on with the company that's like causing you anxiety or whatever. And I was just like, Jason, just be grateful for what you have. Um, you know, you might be inside like, well, fuck you, you know, or you might not feel safe sharing with me or you might then feel shame for having, you know, your difficult emotions around whatever it is that you're going through. And so not only are you then now feeling the difficult emotions around like for having the emotions around what you're going through, but you also aren't listening to those original emotions and trying to unpack it. Because again, like, let's say something happens, like, you know, whether it's with the company or at home or your relationship or whatever, and you're feeling anxiety or you're feeling guilt or something, it's important to listen to that so you can sure. act, react accordingly, rather than like dismissing it and being like, well, I'm just gonna focus on, it's like one of my, another one that always bothers me and people are like, we don't talk about problems at our company, we talk about solutions. Or like, we don't focus on the negative. And I'm like, if there's a fire in you, like, are you just gonna leave it? And you're just gonna let it burn and let the place burn down? No, you have to deal with the fire. It doesn't mean that you like, that's the only thing you focus on and you can't do anything else until the fire's figured out. We all have fires in our lives that we need to live alongside, right? right? So that's the one with, with gratitude with anything like you know just be grateful or just think positively about it or change the story you're telling yourself like there's a place for that, that kind of stuff but there's also like you just want to be really mindful whether you're doing it with yourself or you're doing it with somebody that you like care about and you want to support it's not supportive a lot of the time and people will right. feel unsafe hearing that and with the other one you mentioned um you gotta love yourself before anyone else can love you or something along those which lines is, which you know yeah, there's, there's a lot of truth there. Totally. There's there's absolute merit to that. But also we learn how to love ourselves in relationship. Like we're wounded in relationship and we heal in relationship. So we don't just like spontaneously develop feelings of compassion and love for ourselves. Like we do that in relationship with others. That's what therapy is for. That's what like, sure. you know, or maybe it's, it might be a pet, you know, or it might be like a, you know, God or some kind of being. But usually people develop feelings of self-love as a result of having had loving relationships in their lives. And when I'm working with clients who've had a lot of trauma and abuse and maybe they don't have that from their parents, there's, there's often what we always call like a competent protector. There's one or two or something, you know, a couple of people in their lives growing up that they were reliable they were consistent and sometimes I mean it was a, a cat or a dog you know or, or a sibling or a friend or a babysitter or a nanny or an aunt or a teacher or a coach or whatever but it's it's in relationship that we learn how to experience and feel love and that's how we ultimately can give ourselves that love yeah I, you hit on so many again we might be here for a while but, <laughs> so what I've found 
with regards to, and I, I love what I think it was with Kelly Turner said at Revitalize List last year, and you guys listen to the podcast, like Big T and Little T with trauma. Totally. And so, yeah. like, when I think of, you sort of hit on two things. When I think of, like, Big T, I think of death, heartbreak, um, just something a little bit more severe, and little trauma, I think of, like, you know, work issues, work problems. And I think with what, what I've found personally with, like, the Big T, like, specifically to grief, there's everyone grieves on their own timeline everyone grieves differently but whether you grieve you know via bawling your eyes out on day one or day two or month 12 or whatever it is the point is is like there's no way around it it's only through it and you don't get to the other end unless you go through it and to go through it you have to feel it exactly but everyone has their own timetables and what you see is like a loved one it just it, you know when someone you care about is grieving all you can do is like it, it makes you feel terrible and you're trying to comfort them and, and you try to help it's like the last thing you have to like do it totally very carefully yeah i think as a society we are so afraid of emotions within ourselves but also within others and we're, we need to be more okay with people not being okay and you know as like a you know whether i call myself a codependent or not like as somebody who grew up taking care of a parent and emotionally and who is made their profession around taking care of people emotionally because I have so much discomfort around other people's discomfort. Um, it's been a real journey for me to be able to just be okay with someone not being okay and not trying to fix it and not trying to help and not seeing myself as a failure if they're not like better. But I think, um, yes, like ultimately with grief, with any kind of like emotional process, like you said, the only way out is through. There's a, you can't expedite it. You can only slow it down. Sometimes it expedites itself. You don't have a choice. Totally. Sometimes it expedites itself. Sometimes it takes a long time. Totally. It's not linear. And the other thing I just wanted to say in response to the big T, little T trauma, like, yes, like you're, you're on the right track there. And oftentimes when we did, at least in sort of the more th- psychotherapeutic community, when we talk a big, big T, little T, it's more around like big T as in like a big event or sure. like a natural disaster like, or like something. Whereas death, little T, someone, yeah. yeah, totally. And little T more like it's that kind of like insidious, um, oftentimes what we call relational trauma or attachment trauma where, sure. you know, a relationship, a child grows up and, you know, they learn that they can't really rely on a parent per se or a caregiver or that it's, it's not safe. And so they ultimately learn to take care of themselves or they learn to, um, this has all come back to attachment theory, which we probably won't have time to get into, but it's really interesting if people, everyone should read the book Attached, by the way. Um, but ultimately when you realize like the way that you relate in relationship comes back to proximity seeking and wanting to be close to your caregiver and wanting to maintain um, closeness for survival purposes, sure. because you know infants can't take care of themselves, then you can make sense of a lot of it. But you could have little T as an adult. It could be adult onset little T. It yeah, doesn't. To- not everything has to form in childhood. Totally, totally. That's yeah. It's it's. I mean, usually, it, it, as far as like attachment theory, that's usually like where we're looking at people's attachment styles. Sure. But they change, of course, across of a life. Excuse me, across the course of a lifetime. And yeah, like especially romantic relationships or yeah. even like workplaces. I have clients yeah. who are truly traumatized from being in a really like awful workplace in which like they felt like it was abusive and you know they were like constantly criticized and constantly neglected and nothing was ever good enough and they always felt like they were being threatened whether it's at work in a relationship or you know 
bad texts at, late at night. There's there's little tea with with bad text messages late at night <laughs> totally, in this day this totally. day and age. Yes, yeah, totally. Like yeah, texts from people. I mean, it, it, we're all hiding behind screens, and people are that much more like cruel as a result because this is what's yeah. related to like mirror neurons and empathy and stuff. Like we don't have that um, immediate response of someone's face when we're we criticize them, and we don't have like we're not held accountable. It's to, just so much uh, harder to be totally you know, an asshole in person than it is. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> Social and, media. And the, and the other piece like that I always like to note on is, I mean, I could speak about like stuff related to privilege and privilege in the wellness world and everything like that forever, but there's a lot of trauma of, of you know, being a person, being a marginalized person in our society. Sure. So, you know, you and I as like two white, straight, able-bodied, cisgender, like, you know, whatever, affluent, like all the educated, all the layers of privilege sure. that we have. You know, there are a lot of people who walk around every day with like low grade or higher grade anxiety because, you know, for us, like we look at a, a cop and we're like, oh, I think that cop will protect me. And, you know, for a person of color, they might look at a cop and be like, I don't know if that cop will protect me or sure. if they're, you know, looking at me like I'm a criminal, right? So they're, they're speaking about the big T, little T stuff, like that's just another place of where there's constant insidious trauma for a lot of people is depending on how much like aggression and microaggressions you experience in your life as a result of being a, a marginalized person. You're dealing with it every day from, from people who are racist or sexist, which we all sure. are. So something else you also touched on, and I think so many people not struggle with this, but it's just maybe the way they're wired. You know, the, the type A, someone who's, you know, sets goals, strives for, for perfection. Yeah. But, it, you know, it, it, it's hard to be, I would say, it's hard to be successful without striving to be perfect in many ways. Totally. And, and that, what's that delicate balance of wanting to be the best and working hard and at the same time not having it be potentially unhealthy? Yeah, that's such a great question. And I think it's a balance a lot of people yearn to find if they're aware that this is something they struggle with. And I think it was Kristen Neff who coined the term healthy striving. And so ultimately we want to be able to find a place where we're more process over outcome oriented, you know, where we find ourselves like as cliched as it is. It's a journey. Exactly. <laughs> I didn't even have to say it. Um, yeah. So being able to kind of just be more present focused and enjoying the journey and you're not kind of thinking, you're not living your life with this perspective that's like, when I get, you know, when I 10x my company, you know, when I get the diamond ring on my finger, you know, when I like, you know, buy my apartment, when I lose those 10 pounds, like when I do this kind of thing, then I'll be happy. And it's not so much like, like this, this striving for goals, the seeking of whatever, you know, the, the goal is that you're moving toward isn't so much a like, I'm only going to be enough if it's more like this is my North Star. This is my like coming from a place of values of something that is meaningful for me and not from a place of like fear and wanting to like conform to society's expectations of mine, which again, like we've got to be realistic. Obviously there are social norms and, and social expectations or societal expectations in this like script that we follow that we might align with, but we're not like, we're not moving toward whatever that goal is again from like this place of like fear and anxiety and not enoughness and compromising our like relationships and like our friendships and connection and meaning and rest and self-care and introspection like for in pursuit of this goal so what's your uh one minute elevator pitch slash advice to you know someone someone in new york or like a major city is like clearly like ambitious and working hard listening to this podcast on their commute yeah. or on their subway you know, I think you're speaking to a lot of people right now, and it's so hard to 
Totally. So, okay, let me ask you a question before I come up with it because, you know, some one of my challenges is generalizing this stuff because I'm such a subjectivist. <laughs> I'm like, you know, working one-on-one with people. It's like, well, if you don't see it, if you're happy, if like, like, who am I to say that you should live your life any differently, right? Like that maybe, and maybe that's the pitch, right? Like it's like, everyone thinks that they they should be living their life this way or they should be living their life that way or they're doing this right or they're doing this wrong and ultimately it's like no no it's your world you create the own script your own story your own script that you want to follow in your life but ultimately like if you're feeling really disconnected if you're feeling chronically tired like if you're feeling anxious if you feel a lot of that shame and depression and sometimes it takes time to even recognize that's what we're going through then maybe that's a signal that's there to tell you that like you're not living a life aligned with your values and it might you know, I mean, like go see a coach or therapist. Um, and, and, you know, maybe like I would say come back to expectations. Sure. I think we, whether it's expectations for ourselves, expectations for other people around us or expectations for life, we all have unrealistically high expectations. And as a result, we're chronically disappointed. We're chronically, <laughs> you know, ashamed and anxious and stuff like that. And I remember once a supervisor said to me, the d- difference between like expectation and reality is where all the suffering lies and it was so profound That's for a good me one. it's like it's so true because it's like if you can either remove expectation which can be challenging i usually tell people to just come up with a whole bunch of different scenarios as opposed to attaching to one expectation and that's a way to have like less expectations but if you can remove expectation or if you can at least make them really realistic and be less attached to them mm-hmm. then it's you're far more likely to hit them and life is far more likely to hit them for you and you're going to be feel more easeful and feel more relaxed and not always feel like resentful as though people are letting you down or you're letting yourself down or life is you've been dealt a bad hand and part of the reason for that is because we're surrounded by social media we're surrounded by disney movies fairy tales you know rom-coms disney movies are easy right now (laughs) (laughs) easy but like we're surrounded by this stuff that basically says this is how your life like we you know i grew up with like cinderella and you know sleeping beauty and little mermaid and stuff that's like your your worth in this world woman is to, or, or one day woman is to be beautiful and thin and have find a boyfriend or husband your prince charming i feel like disney is so much kinder than instagram yeah totally <laughs> now it is for sure but either way like as a result we have unrealistic expectations that we place on ourselves and others and what life is supposed to look like so this is definitely more than one minute of an elevator pitch but i would just say like for people look at your expectations on yourself look at your expectations on life and see what it would be like if you could make them a little bit like gentler and more realistic and that's immediately in that moment in doing that you can alleviate anxiety just put like a warning label on your goal totally totally you know if you're looking for you know just be if you're looking for happiness this this will probably not do it and also be mindful of the time and effort that it will probably require and if you're okay with still doing it then go ahead and do it and allow yourself (laughs) to iterate i think sometimes like we have this whole like all these things that we say and we grow up hearing like never quit or don't ever say no to an opportunity like sometimes you should say I, I say no to a lot of opportunities otherwise I'd lose my mind you know or like I'm sure you do too or like never quit like sometimes you have to quit it, whether it's you know it's you're knowing when to quit exactly it's knowing when and like making sure you're doing it from a place again of like intention and like I don't know be, being deliberate and wise and stuff like that and so so yeah I mean I guess with the goal thing it's like use it as your north star and like you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, if you'd asked me five years ago sitting here, I think at this point I had made the decision to move to New York, but five and a half years ago, if you'd asked me like, what's your five-year plan, Megan? I'd be like, mm, I don't know. I'm like working at this college right now. Maybe I'll start a private practice, marry my boyfriend I'm living with at this time, like get a place in Whistler. I don't know. Like seems like the, <laughs> the life that I want. And now here I am like sitting here having this conversation with you in New York City, like with my like business that I love, like, you know, in a very different type of relationship, like in a very, you know, completely different city 
city. So we make our goals and, and you know, five-year plans and stuff on the information that we have, and we don't know what life's going to give us in the meantime. So you said knowing when to quit, and I think I know, myself included in the past, I'm happily married now, but a lot of people struggle with that question specifically when it comes to relationships. Yes. What is your advice for someone? What do you, I know, again, it's hard to generalize. Totally. Yeah. But. Um, it's such a good question. And again, yes, you're right. It is hard to generalize. I think there are like, you know, there's sometimes like there's like the deal breaker times when you've got to know when to quit. Um, and we as individuals can only come up with those ourselves. But I think like on the whole, um, if you're, what I try to ask myself is, is my resistance here or is my desire to leave this relationship coming from a place of ego or integrity or like ego or self-respect? And when I say ego, um, I mean it more in like the spiritual sense, like like fear or, you know, a, a trigger from my like abandonment issues or a, a fear of being seen or um, a fear of not being able to be the partner that I believe this person deserves or that I believe I should be or something like that. So is it coming from like something like that and just and just the discomfort of being in a relationship? Mm -hmm. Because as much as relationships are like really beautiful and we all yearn to be in them, like for the most part, um, they're deeply uncomfortable and deeply challenging. And so I think like if a person has that level of self-awareness, asking yourself, is this coming from ego, like one of those places, or is it coming from like integrity and self-respect? Like, um, you know, like I, if my friend or loved one were in a relationship like this, I would be really like concerned for them or I would be encouraging them to leave or, um, you know, I would, I, I, maybe I'd be like, you know, throwing some sure. judgment their way or whatever. So like, like that kind of piece, but it's just, it's also tough because like when you're in it, you know, it's, it's very hard to see things in that clear way. So yeah. I think like, you know, getting some kind of like support and consultation and also knowing that like relationships, like everything else, just like life, people will tell you they're an expert on it. Like say, oh, I'm a relationship expert. I'm like, no one's a fucking relationship <laughs> expert. We're living in a, I shouldn't use the term crazy, like a really like wild time right now when it comes to relationships, when it comes to like conversations around like monogamy and longevity and like what the purpose of a relationship is anymore because we're not like, again, women aren't dependent on men and this isn't heterosexual relationships I'm speaking, but like we're not dependent on men for like a home or for income. And, you know, we live much longer and like, there are just so many reasons, like we, you know, we don't have religion as much as like a barrier. So all the reasons we used to get into relationships that were very like functional, practical, mm -hmm. like for survival purposes, procreation, it's very different and it's shifted a sure. lot now. So I would say just for people who are have, have that question that they're asking, you can like ask around and like, of course it's important to like be able to externalize and find support and different opinions and stuff. But at the end of the day, like, no one knows the answer to that sure. question except for you. And you're going to be the only person who can like make that decision to stay or leave. So what I found, I'll give, since everyone has an expert. Opinion, yeah, yeah, please. No, my, I'd love my, to hear your, my, I mean, my, you're the, you've been the one who's been married for how many years? Like I'm, years. like, I'm like notoriously single. Um, my, my opinion, it's not a sign, it's not a leave, but like a reason to, to, to call it quits. But I think with regards to life, as you mentioned, you know, life is filled with, it's a journey. There are potholes you know, there's disease, there's death, like it can be chat. Like I love life is beautiful, but like all these things happen. And I think when two people are together and it's early and like those things aren't playing a role, like everyone's more or less like, you know, 
Maslow's hierarchy needs are all taken care yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, totally. If things are too difficult, probably not going to work. Yeah. There needs to be some level, like, I don't believe in, like, everything should be easy, but there needs to be, like, some level of ease. Because when push comes to shove, even, like, just the regular stuff, if everything's going fine, like, kids, lack of sleep, like, if if the relationship isn't, like, on solid ground, it will unravel yeah. quickly. That's my two cents. Like, there needs to be a level of ease yeah and i think in that i hear too and at least what what resonates for me because um, life is not easy and if it's not easy now man it's only (laughs) well and i think being able to um be have like partnership and also being able to hear each other's needs and want to meet each other's needs even Mm -hmm. if it means compromising your own at times like this, you know, speaks to something you alluded to earlier or off air around like narcissism, but oftentimes well, like the, my you, next topic. Yeah, okay, yeah. Let's but go if there. you like you know, finding yourself in I've I've, you know, dated many people who, you know, whether or not they're NPD you know, narcissistic personality disorder or at least have like NPD traits, um, I mean empaths and narcissists are like a they're like magnets, you let's, know. Let's, and, we have to talk about okay, that. Okay, so yeah. So all the hot button issues on one total, podcast. Totally, totally. Oh my gosh, we could riff forever. But uh yeah, I mean look like um I think we throw any kind of clinical term around a little bit too much like we say like oh this person is you know narcissistic or they're borderline or they're OCD or whatever that kind of thing but either way like you know traits of narcissism like you know include this sort of like grandiose sense of self-importance and and actually the interesting thing is that most people who are narcissistic or have those qualities are actually deeply insecure underneath and it's more of like a veneer or it's a way of relating to the world that whether conscious or unconscious um is a way of, of basically coping with this like dark shame at the core that they believe, you know, they're unlovable and they're not good enough. So they cannot, this is why narcissists have a really hard time taking feedback or ever like, they'll never admit they're wrong because like, like you will literally never like, you <laughs> so know. So is that telltale sign number one? Totally, They totally. don't admit defeat. They never, they, they never admit <laughs> defeat and they'll, yeah, they'll never admit they're wrong. They're also like, um, like. Do they it, apologize? No. Okay. No, I mean, or if they do, it's like, it, it's, it's manipulative. Like, it's like, it's a, it, it's not like, because they actually think they're sorry, or it might be like a, you know, people are like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry you feel that way. Or like, I'm sorry, you're like, that's just a word. Like, never tell somebody I'm sorry you feel that way. Like, as like an, it's not an apology, you know, <laughs> like, like maybe like, I'm sorry you're going through this right now. Like, as in a genuine, I'm sorry, you know, you're, you know, you've lost your friend or parent or whatever, but not like, well, I'm sorry you feel that way that I hurt your feelings, but I didn't, you know? So, so it, yes, Notoriously kind of invalidating power dynamic. Um, there's a lot of like, um, it, you'll hear a lot of like like name dropping and like bragging of certain things and like like a like um, they just seem like can often seem like quite conceited. Um, what else? I'm mean, trying to think of other kind of like telltale signs. Well, I like the I'm sorry you feel that. That's like I'm like that happens in every relationship sometimes. Yeah. I would say, but like if you start to see a lot of that, guys yeah. and girls listening, run. Totally. If you if they're, yeah, if they're, if they're never exactly, and if they're just like always <clears throat> invalidating feelings or never taking responsibility, um, or never like like they always have to be kind of right, and there's never kind of like oh I'm learning from you or something like that. Like or, I'm or, sorry, I, I I'm sorry I fucked up. Right. It was exa- my fault. Exactly. Exactly. I'm it's my fault. End of story. Or or saying like <laughs> I don't know. Or I'm always like, it's like oftentimes you'll ask someone like, oh, do you know such and such? And they'll be like, 
yep, I'm familiar with that. Yep, I know this. And you're like, that's like a very obscure thing for you to be familiar with. Maybe if you've read everything. But they often are very, very smart as well. So like that can be quite attractive. Um, another thing like quite focused on appearances. So like um, whether it's, you know, they want like the attractive person on their arm to kind of like make them feel more powerful or they just want to be at like, you know, whatever. They feel important. Go to the important party and be the important person. And there's just kind of more of like an air about that. Um Although, like, I, you know, it's, I, 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 again, with, like, the generalizing thing, like, I also encourage people to, like, do their own research on this one because, like, there's sort of, like, the profile of the narcissist, sure. but then there are also, like, a lot of narcissistic qualities that people bring to the table, and you might not think it because you might be like, oh, well, this person is, like... Um, I, I read something interesting recently that was, like, actually, oftentimes when people are quite, like super self-deprecating or super self-effacing sometimes that can also be like a bit of like a narcissistic quality because there's just like a, a hyper like focus on like the self are we basically. all narcissists i know well, that, that's the thing too. do we that's all i think saying. everyone to some degree has like totally. some narcissistic qualities in certain right. circumstances well and, and you know some people might describe it as being like too much attachment to ego which is what sure. i was describing earlier which is kind of like you know caring what people think and like wanting like being performative and like not being if there is even such thing as like a true self, but not being in touch with just like being the authentic self, but more like the performative ego-like self. So yeah, I mean, we all have like, we all have an element of narcissism and actually like another, I can't remember who this person was who said this, but another like professional in this area has said like, there's healthy narcissism, right? Like there's a healthy sure. element. Like of going narcissism. to a party that everyone wants to be at or right, something. Exactly. Like there's some degree oh, yeah, Or like even like, I mean, gosh, I think branding ourselves on social media, like it's been very challenging for me to be like, let me take another photo of myself and <laughs> post it on like smile it's like this is just a photo of me and like a caption and this is so odd that people might want to read this and but i need to do this for my personal <laughs> right, brand exactly my business. exactly so so yeah the but but definitely like empaths tend to be more drawn to narcissists and like vice versa because narcissists are kind of like they, they see them as prey in a way like there's sort of a, a cycle that narcissists go through where ultimately they um, you become what they call the narcissistic supply and so if you're someone who like has a lot of compassion and like you know a, like maybe doesn't have the highest sense of self-worth you know and is kind of used to being treated shitty um you don't pick up on the signs that someone's like dismissing and invalidating you or that their behavior is inappropriate and so you put up with a lot and you're trying to fix them and help them and get into this kind of codependent um, dynamic and so the narcissistic supply, we become that when we're like basically filling, feeding the ego, we're the supply to their ego so that their ego is like, oh, okay, like, yes, this person, this, like, they need me. I'm just so important. And then eventually once, you know, they're, you're no use to them anymore. They discard, they go through the process of what's called like discarding. So that's why sometimes <laughs> people feel like, oh no, like I've just like abandoned. But one thing I'll say for anybody who's been through that is oftentimes a narcissist will abandon or discard their prey when the prey becomes too strong when they become too strong and start to realize the cracks and are like no i'm gonna hang out with my friends or like no that's not okay that you did that thing they're like okay i can't bat you around like a half dead mouse anymore so like i'm gonna take off and find another one so usually if you've been discarded it's actually like a sign you've been stronger any advice for empaths out there yeah um something that a term i came up with uh or like a saying i came up with uh ultimately when I, I decided to stop having um, communication with my dad was uh, don't stand in the crossfire of someone else's war with themselves. And I think oftentimes, especially as like helpers, empaths, people who are super compassionate, we get in the crossfire of someone's war that they're having with themselves. And we oftentimes don't even realize it because again, maybe it's something we've been used to or we don't know how to recognize like inappropriate or disrespectful treatment, especially as women. Um, not to say that it's just women who go through this. So I guess my advice would just be like, 
you might have, so I talked earlier about how ultimately with mindfulness and self-compassion and whatnot, we want to be able to recognize our difficult emotion and know if that emotion is something we should act on or not. And it's the same thing with the difficult emotions we have when someone is like suffering in front of us, or we have like an urge to help or an urge to forgive or an urge to like respond to someone's seeming suffering with our compassion. So the example here is like, you know, it, you know, it, whether it was like in my case, in that instance I shared, or let's say in a dating example, and someone's like, oh, I'm, you know, this is when they might, oh, I'm so sorry. It might be like an apology, but again, it's all in manipulation. Um, oh, but I can't live it. You know, I need you or no, like you're the most amazing woman I've ever met or something. And you're starting to feel this like urge to forgive or this like compassion. Oh, well, they've gone through such a rough time. You know, they had a really tough childhood. Start making excuses. Start making excuses for them. And you start like, you have this urge because you see them suffering and that's uncomfortable for you and you want to turn off that suffering by helping them. That's another opportunity for mindfulness. So just like you stay with the anxiety when you get on the plane and remind yourself that flying is like the safest mode of travel or I stay with my anxiety before I come on this podcast podcast and you know create more realistic expectations for myself and do whatever I need to do to do the shit that scares me it's the same thing with sitting with the discomfort of wanting that urgency that like compulsion that really uncomfortable feeling of being like oh this person is suffering and I want to help them and be like no like they're at war with themselves and you're actually being in danger by stepping into that and you need to walk away and be okay with them not being okay and it's not your what's the saying not my circus not my monkeys kind of thing sure. like and and that's so much easier said it's than done it's hard to spot it's it's super hard to spot yeah and that's where i mean obviously like you know consultation or therapy or coaching or whatever is is generally necessary sure yeah so let's let's close with the gut brain connection sure yeah something we've talked about yeah, you know, I mean, I'm so glad that over the last several years at this point, it seems, I mean, you guys are always at the forefront of this stuff. And I think it's been several years um, that that's been kind of a topic or was it before since it's been initially a topic at Revitalize? Talking think, about was, 2014. Yeah, exactly. Drew Ramsey and lots of other people. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, um, we've we've learned that like, you know, there's serotonin production in the gut. Like the mind is not just in the head. The mind is like, you know, it, that's why it's often, I don't know if misnomer is the right term, but like just um, making the binary of like the mind and the body or like the mind-body connection even in itself sure. is not necessarily helpful because like the mind includes the body. So you can say like the brain body, but like the mind is, is influenced by the gut, um, you know, by, I mean, trauma and our held in our emotions and our, and our hips and, you know, wherever else in our sure. body and stuff. So, again coming back to this idea that like so many of us believe that we have like a mental illness which like as an aside i don't even like that terminology i think it's a way that we situate mental health challenges within the individual and like pharmaceuticals companies make a lot of money and you know we avoid conversations around gun control and stuff like that by being like well no it's 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 the individual's fault it's not the fact that we're like you know overworked and underslept and undernourished and like disconnected and you know yeah there's so much to right all that kind of stuff we've always had there's just something much bigger at play much bigger at play and so like this is one of those topics and so we don't realize that like you know in addition to all of those other things i mentioned or like the other you know 11 lifestyle factors that make you feel depressed that i I wrote about in that article one of them is our our microbiome or our gut bacteria and ensuring that that is you know balanced and and uh healthy and our digestion is often that's why like you know a lot of um holistic doctors or naturopaths or chinese medicine doctors functional medicine are always you know curious about digestion right because it's it's a signal it's it's telling us whether or not you know our gut is is um healthy and so it's interesting because for me like personally i 
always had struggled with stomach issues. Like even when I was a really a young kid, like I mean, in my teens, and I remember um, my doctor putting me on a super heavy antacid because I just used to get the worst stomach aches. And I don't know at this point if it was related to stress or if that was a way that my like my depression was manifesting or if maybe it was like, you know, a sensitivity or an intolerance to a food. I'm always careful with that because I do think like too many of us are like, I'm gluten-free, dairy-free, free of everything when it's more of like an eating disorder at the root of that. Um, but either way, like I'd struggled with that for a long time. And even and then I remember in university, like I would notice I'd be like, oh, if I like if I like drink alcohol, sometimes my stomach stops hurting. Or if I, I was like trying to do all these like weird things, like clearly like, so nobody should drink alcohol to try to fix their gut bacteria. Um, but anyway, this is all to say that like what I realized like over many years was my mental health was very connected to my digestion. And my friends joke because like we'll go to Vegas for three days and I'll be like, guys, I just, I need to go find some vegetables. Like, and it's not about like being restrictive or low calories. It's like, no, like my body does not digest and work and then I don't sleep. I get really anxious. Like I feel depressed. I kind of feel like my body's rotting. So I noticed like over many years, just how much what I ate actually impacted my mood. Um, and then of course all this literature started to come out around like the gut brain connection. And I've realized, you know, mm, interesting what happens when I take a probiotic and kind of experimented myself and stuff like that. So, so I always recommend that my clients take a probiotic if they're not taking one already. And we talk about diet and again, it's trickier when you're working in eating disorder recovery, which I do a lot of still because, um, oftentimes an eating disorder will try to find ways to tell a person to restrict and they can't have that or they can't have this. And I will just say too, that a lot of times with eating disorder recovery, um, people are like, oh, I'm intolerant to, you know, lactose or this or that. And it's because they may have avoided a food for so long. So you're not making the enzyme anymore. So like for me, I'm fine with dairy now, but I wasn't fine with dairy for a while because I um, restricted it for so long that I stopped making lactase, right? So anyway, coming back to the, the probiotic stuff, um, you know, I think we're, our job when we're working with our mental health is to just understand what works best for us. And so we have to look in so many different areas and that's why it's like, it's kind of this like puzzle that we're trying to figure out for ourselves. And so that's one area where it's like, it is very unlikely that it's going to hurt if you supplement, you know, a probiotic in your diet, or if you just eat a more kind of like gut happy diet. And I'm sure, you know, you have all sorts of probably resources and articles on that, but yes, like fermented foods and foods that are, um, you know, naturally higher, higher occurring in probiotics and stuff like that. And if you do have food intolerances or things that upset your stomach, you know, being mindful of how much you're consuming of that kind of thing, um, more like, you know, Alcott line versus acidic diets and stuff like that. And you just notice like, how does, how's your mood? Like for me, if I'm not taking a probiotic, I truly notice that, well, one, I, my digestion is not normal. Um, and two, as a result or connected to it, I'm more depressed and more anxious and don't sleep as well and stuff like that. We share the same favorite one. Yes. Oh, good. Perfect. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. No, I, I mean, I said this off air, but truly, I mean, I've, because of travel and stuff like that, I'm, I'm, I, I, I've always had refrigerated probiotics because I find they're the best and they're the ones I really notice a difference with. And since traveling a lot more in recent years with work, um, I have not been able to find a shelf stable one that actually works. And I'm like, are these just placebos or sugar pills? Like what's going on here? And I tried the mind body green probiotic little plug here. And it was like a game changer. I'm, I'm super excited about it. I love it. I've, I struggle. I don't know if you know this, like as long as I can remember, I struggle, str have struggled with irregularity. 
Okay, no, I didn't know and that. Yeah, I can't believe we have talked about Fort Gason. I struggle with lots of things. Since yeah, we don't have enough time in the podcast. But it wasn't until taking ours where it's like, I don't have the issue anymore. Yeah, that's amazing. amazing. Oh, that must be so rewarding for you. No, it like, is. We like, made this and it works well, for me. Well, uh, as I say, like of all the things in my life that are unpredictable, yeah. that's one thing I like predictability. Yes, you know? totally. If I'm going to predict one thing, it's just totally, regularity. Totally, totally. Um, well, I'm glad you love it. So my last question um, a lot to unpack here, but something else we've we've talked about is intermittent fasting and specifically yeah. some of the pitfalls. Yeah, intermittent fasting, gosh, I mean, I know it's very trendy right now and lots of mixed opinions. Um again, I think I think like health and wellness it's so individual and we do need to really be honest and aware about what works for us. But my concern with intermittent fasting is it's very triggering for anyone who has an eating disorder history or who is perhaps more vulnerable to eating disorders. Um, at least like, there's, there's so much we don't know about eating disorders still, like everything, but like one theory that we tend to work with is something called the loaded gun theory, which means like a person has like, I know it's like such an intense like theory. Scary I know, theory. I know. <laughs> loaded gun theory, guys. <laughs> so I know, Whoa. I sort of to scare people from trying anything that might like make the gun go off. But ultimately um, the idea is that like, eating disorders there is a genetic vulnerability to it so like for me and my family like both sides like everyone's had some for the most part some form of like eating disorder addiction like over exercising whatever it's all related um and so if you have a propensity to it and then what triggers most eating disorders is dieting um then you're something like intermittent fasting which is dieting which is restricting will set that off and so Basically, um, intermittent fasting, uh, there's so like it's like an umbrella term, right? But I mean, it's very different depending on your window. Like, sure. so some people might be like, oh, well, you know, I intermittent, I, you know, my fasting window is like 12 hours, mm-hmm. and that's like, okay, basically well, just not eating it. Yeah, night I mean, that's like yeah. relatively normal if you're going from like 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. Sure. or whatever. Like, I mean, that's uh, most people, I mean, I think this is. Most people know this, but like breakfast yeah. is, stands for break fast, right? So of course there's going to be a fasting period at night usually, unless you know you wake up, you're starving, and you wake up in the middle of the night. You're going out having drinks and then getting pizza at three in the morning. Yeah, totally. Which yeah. also is like normal and part of sure. life. And and you know, in eating disorder recovery too, the body because it's been in such a starvation mode, it will really increase ghrelin, and like like you you still believe that there's food scarcity, and you're basically starving and so a lot of people when they're recovering from eating disorders they are hungry all the time and they are getting up and eating in the night um and it is really important to honor that hunger and to like teach your body again that food is not scarce and that it can trust you and that's how you move more toward intuitive eating but ultimately with um intermittent fasting you know people are going to try it if they're going to try it but it is not a silver bullet and what it can do is it can trigger um one eating disorders two it can create uh Make, make it so that like our hunger and satiety cues are externalized this is what dieting mm-hmm. largely does so whereas ultimately we want to be able to just eat as we did when we were like how we were born to eat which is like eat when you're hungry ideally you stop when you're full ish you know and like sometimes again there's room for this intuitive eating sometimes you do eat for comfort sometimes you do eat more than like you normally would or past satiety maybe it's thanksgiving you know maybe it's a sure. holiday maybe you really want to have the anniversary cake with your partner like you don't yeah. need to always be like i'm only eating when i'm hungry and stopping when i'm full or i'm only like mindfully eating like sometimes you eat watch tv when you eat that's fine like and so i just want to normalize all that because i think again in our wellness world we often well, I, I always say oftentimes like a lot of the specific examples you mentioned whether it's celebration birthday cake holidays like it, 
and I've said this before here, but it's an important point. The stress of not eating and those totally. like negates probably oh the benefit of, exactly. of eating it. Like if it's going to stress the shit out of you to not eat the cake, and I would argue that's worse exactly. than just eating the cake. Just don't do, do it every day. Right. Well, and the thing is when we stop restricting, there's psychological restriction and physical restriction. So when we stop restricting both psychologically, so we're like, I'm allowed to have cake if I want cake. And physically, like we're not starving ourselves to, you know, as a mode of trying to lose weight that ultimately like usually does not stay off because that's not usually our bodies are are a size for a certain reason and we just know dieting doesn't work but ultimately like when you stop doing that kind of restriction then you're amazed you're like it's you know i just have had like the best text this holiday season from a couple of clients who i've been working on intuitive eating with because they're like megan it's amazing like I was around like a plate of cookies yesterday at like my holiday party at or office party. And like, I didn't want them. Not because like, I didn't think I should have them. I just actually wasn't craving them and I wasn't obsessing sure. over them. And then like, you know, but the next day I had this. And so coming back to into intermittent fasting, basically, I just really encourage people to be mindful of like their intention behind why they're doing this. Um, be skeptical of, of who the professional is who's recommending it. Most like professionals who are really learned in the space, like Will Cole, for example, they know to tr- test for eating disorders, make sure a person doesn't mm-hmm. have a history of that, a vulnerability to that. If you're a woman, it can really fuck with your hormones. Especially if you're under a certain body fat. Exactly. Yeah. It can really fuck with your hormones, um, which has all sorts of, you know, other complications, you know, osteoporosis and stuff like that. If we're too low of a body weight, you know, if we stop having a period, that's, you know, we need a period to be able to um, prevent, sure. prevent osteoporosis. And so if you really, really like absolutely you're like, no, I need to try it. Like I just, I'm so interested in this and I think it could work for me. I would say particularly for when, w- women, make sure your fasting window is not too big. Like mm-hmm. think honestly, like 12 to like 16 hours maximum. Like I don't even, I mean, I wouldn't even like recommend that. I would say like 12 to 14 hours so a couple of things we've talked about earlier and and why i love these practices so much one yoga and then the other you know mindfulness slash meditation and breath work is you start to feel you talked about you start to feel your body you start to more in tune and i think you start to know when like um i I really i want this i i need it versus like you know my as i say mindless is this mindless donut eating or is it mindful donut eating? Totally. And there's a little bit of a difference. And the mindful one's just more enjoyable. But those practices help you become more in tune with like whether it's hunger or trauma, like yeah. you name it. Exactly. And ultimately, we just want to figure out like our relationship to food or our relationship to our bodies or to life or to sadness, whatever. Like, because I think, again, like we, we yes, we want to ultimately like eat a donut mindfully, maybe because we want to actually experience the donut. And also like there are times where, you know, we're so distressed and the option is like heroin or a donut. You have the fucking donut and don't judge yourself for it. You know, (laughs) do you know the donut plant has gluten-free donuts now? I did not know that. Yeah. It's changed my perspective. Oh my gosh. Well, there you go. Here in New York guys. Yeah, exactly. So you don't have to, it it doesn't mess with your digestion. Probably, you know, but you know, like (laughs) I think it's like life is, I mean, it's, it's, you know, again, cliche to say life is short, but it's like, we're just, I think, I think oftentimes we're, you know, don't get me wrong. I am all about like wellness, but I think I'm, I'm very 80, 20. And well, I think like we've declared wellness is dead. It's about ex- well-being now. Exactly. Yes. Perfect. <laughs> well-being. And it's like, there's room in, in, in well-being and wellness for these like joys of life, like that we're here to experience. And I think like oftentimes we 
perfectionism comes into the wellness or well-being experience and we say I have to be I have to always do this or I can't do that and we isolate ourselves through that and we disconnect ourselves and we create a lot of anxiety and you know again like at the end of the day like we're not here for a very long time like focus on connection focus on meaning and if you want the donut have the donut and don't beat yourself up for having the donut you know be present with the donut whatever and like I think we're all just trying to like avoid our mortality and we think that if we like you know don't eat gluten we can somehow like not feel uncomfortable feelings or die and i'm sorry like you can have a perfect diet and you're still gonna die <laughs> and, and you're still gonna feel uncomfortable feelings i love it. We'll, we'll close there you two of my favorite quotes if you have the gluten you're still gonna if you don't have the gluten you're still yeah. gonna die and if you if you if you want the donut have the donut be what was that again it, <laughs> i think i probably said like in, like eat it and, and, and like enjoy don't judge yourself the, yeah. for having the donut like like enjoy the donut have it if like, you want the donut have the donut yeah. enjoy the donut totally we'll, we'll close there yeah. Yeah, all good. Thank Megan, you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jason.